As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best and economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. This could be a one-hour conversation. It is so good, and she is so qualified. She's chief economist at OECD. Laurence Boone uh, joins us now on a trip around the world. And Laurence, I'm going to be selfish and go to the growth recession you call for in the United States, where you've got an ugly statistic, and then the next year it gets uglier for the United States. Well, take that out to a global economy and the benchmark you and I studied in school of 3% global growth as being being lousy. Is our global economy heading or in a growth recession? What a hi, Tom, and thanks for inviting me. Um, the global economy is, is paying a very hefty price for the uh, war that Russia is leading into Ukraine. And, and yes, this is pushing down uh, growth quite a lot to 3%, as you say, which is um, just about one of the, of the low rates we have seen. And it's pushing inflation even higher. We're getting close to 9% or a little more than 6 if we're excluding Turkey uh, in the OECD economies. Do you ascribe to the idea that the only way to break Lawrence Summers' stagflation, the only way to break this, given the war and given the rest, is tight monetary policy? Is that the only way you get this done? So I think we have a little more messages than this uh, in there. So, um, as far as monetary policy is concerned, we have you know still healthy growth, employment, and high inflation. So what we're saying is remove some monetary policy accommodation. Um, Monetary policy, as you very well know, cannot address uh, supply shock, but they can signal that they will target this, you know, by telegraphing what they are doing. And in those countries where there is obvious excess demand, then yes, monetary policy should be tighter. Laurence, what's the main swing factor that led to the downgrade and that could potentially lead to more downgrades ahead? So the main swing factor is, is really Russia's aggression into Ukraine. Um, as you know, we were already having 
um, inflation going up because of the pandemic and the issue is China supply chain and zero COVID policy. Um, so that was already affecting us. Now, um, the disruptions and the cut to the production of cereals, of energy coming out of the war is obviously uh, raising inflation. And this higher inflation is undermining consumer confidence and therefore consumption. Uh, one of the things we say, if you allow me just a 30-second sentence on this, is that the burden of inflation, the cost of the, of the war, should be fairly shared between employers and employees, wages and profits, so as to avoid a wage price spiral. So this is one of the reasons why perhaps you accuse the United Kingdom of having taxes that were too high and saying that they had to cut them in order to give people more buying power. How much does there have to be, in some ways, fiscal expansion, despite the idea that people are pointing to some of the fiscal expenditures as being the cause of inflation? Well, there are several reasons why and the UK has lower growth than other G7 economies next year. Uh, one is the higher inflation. The other is tighter and faster, moni faster monetary policy tightening and also faster fiscal consolidation. So what we're recommending to the UK uh, is actually to consider the pace at which fiscal consolidation is taking place if, if growth was too slow as um, fast as what we're describing. Uh, Laurence, the OEEC is part of the alphabet soup of the OECD, are the people that actually prosecuted the Marshall Plan. How do you respond when we hear so many people in a flippant way say, what we need is a new Marshall Plan on Ukraine and the rest as well? How does OECD and you actually feel we will affect a modern Marshall Plan? So the, I think there are two things. One is what's um, happening in <coughs> Ukraine, where, uh, as we can see, uh, everything is being destroyed, all the infrastructure, and so the, a, a large part of the infrastructure and the capacity, the, the productive capacity of the economy. And this will need uh, to be rebuilt. The Marshall Plan goes hand in hand, as you very well know, Tom, um, money on the one side, but also reforms, structural policy reform on the other hand, to ensure that the money, the money is very well channeled. So that's one thing. The other thing I think people have in mind more immediately at the moment, and that we have in mind at least, is globally to avoid a food crisis. Uh, and for this, um, we're just saying a couple of things. One is ensure the transport and logistics of the cereals around the world so that it reaches Middle East and Africa, where it's most needed, where it could cause not only uh, starvation, but also social and political unrest. Um, and for this, uh, we might need more foreign aid, which in a sense is also part of what we call Martian plans. Laurence, you've got a whole host of policy prescriptions, and I just wanted to finish on the UK because you do offer some advice to the British government. Out of the developed economies at the moment, that's the one that seems to be really fighting with low growth and much higher prices in a much more pronounced way than, say, the United States or Europe, for that matter. Can you run us through your thoughts on what you think this government should do right now? Um, I can try. Um, what the, what's very... Um 
What makes the UK different from other G7 economies? As I was saying, higher inflation, um, faster tightening of monetary policy, but um, also faster fiscal consolidation. And then the disruption to manufacturing supply chain, as we know, between China and um, some of the Brexit discussions. So there, there are two things, I think, which um, stand out. One is to carefully weigh what's happening with fiscal policy and make sure that not only the most vulnerable, but the working class just above the most vulnerable is actually being sheltered from the cost of war. And the rise in global oil prices is affecting everyone, as we know. Um, and the second thing uh, that we're saying is obviously trade has to resume um, faster in the UK. Lawrence Boone, thank you. Thank you very much from the OECD. Looking for 3% global GDP over at the World Bank, looking for 29 going to talk economics right now and save the show. But first, with David Blanchflower of Dartmouth <laughs> College, I must ask, pages out saying that Gareth, uh, uh, Gareth has to play regular games to get to the World Cup for Wales. I mean, it sounds to me like he's destined for Cardiff. What do you think? <laughs> sounds like it. We survived this year, but Wales into the World Cup seems not quite a big deal. Are you, anyway. will, are you willing to uh, uh, donate some money here for Cardiff to play the big ticket for Mr. Bale versus going to the tots? He's, he's, he sounds pretty expensive to me. <laughs> you John, and I will send him 20 bucks. Yeah, John, pick it up here. You know. Oh, you want me to get us out of this? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I, that's the only reason I had Blaine Danny, Danny, let's start to talk here. about Cardiff. Yeah, I yeah, think where you've been tremendous over the last 10, 15 years particularly, is to provide this different perspective to the consensus view. You did that in the previous cycle with the labour market. Everyone used to talk about a tight, tight labour market. And by the time we got to the end of that cycle, a lot of people looked back and said, hmm, maybe not. You're trying to do that again. I wanted to start with the data point, And that was the amount of credit, the amount of borrowing that consumers are making at the moment. What do you make of that? And what does it speak to? Well, obviously, the, the starting point is mortgages are now obviously pretty high. And we're seeing slowing in applications. And Presumably, we're seeing slowing in, the, in that housing market. I mean, the other part of it is presumably what we're seeing are people being stretched. Um, and, and you might expect as they're being stretched, they resort to credit cards and um, you know, trying to pay the bills as they go. So, so I'm not exactly sure what to make of it. I mean, I think the answer is that you know, down the road, we're probably going to see some defaults. But I think, I think your point is good in the sense that much of the d discussion that I hear is really quite unbalanced. I mean, we, we're hearing all the conversation about the Fed's going to, the, the last commentator, the Fed's going to do two rate rises and so on. Well, that's fine. Um, it really depends, however, on the data. And I think you know, something that really sets us going is the OECD forecast this morning, which again, to me, looks really too optimistic. But they cut global, they cut the global growth forecast from four and a half to three. And it certainly looks to be too optimistic. So I think the evidence going here is that you know, we're going to wait and we're going to look at the data. But I think everyone seems to be saying the same thing. And there's a cr clearly credible argument to make that output is going to slow much quicker than you think. It's time to sit and watch and wait. And essentially, that's the position that the ECB and the Bank of Japan have taken. So I don't think we've seen a very balanced wait. discussion. I'm not saying I'm right. Danny. But I think, yeah, go, Lisa. Let's just clarify this for a second. What is the correct policy prescription in your view? Is it to not raise rates at all anymore in the Fed, uh, by the Fed? No, I think the answer is that we really have no idea. We have no historical precedent on what to do. There's no data points. Perhaps the only data points we have are 2008 and 1929. 
And so we really have to be dependent on a set of scenarios. Scenario one is inflation keeps rising. Scenario two is COVID moves onwards. Scenario three is output collapses. People start to default on things. Depending upon those sets of scenarios, we, will, we would have to respond. The Fed has to say we're dependent on the data. Uh, and my view is that it's perfectly right. feasible to argue right now that rate cuts are on the table. I mean, one possibility is they're on the table. We'll sit and we'll wait and we'll watch. But suddenly some bad data comes and all the commentators saying they're going to raise X times and so on and we know what's coming. And the only issue is whether it gets to 4% or 3%. Well, that depends on the data. And the first thing to say today, the OECD realizes that they got their output call wrong. And I was looking at France. They're forecasting positive growth for France, the weakest for the UK. They all look overly optimistic. France has just had its uh, first right. quarter GDP reduced from zero to negative 0.2. So are you really going to argue that it's all going to be just fine in quarter two, quarter three, and quarter four? I think the answer right. is we really don't know, Lisa. We really don't know. And to actually argue we know what's coming is just a wing and a prayer. We don't. The count, there are counter arguments <clears throat> on the side that the labor market is much looser than you think. Uh, I have strong views about that. I think it yeah. is. I think people have completely got the labor market wrong, as I've said, for a decade. I haven't well, talked to talk more about it. And I've been thinking and working well, a lot more recently. But Danny, do you think that the reason why the Fed is taking the approach that they have is because it is politically infeasible for them not to come out with a much harder line, despite the fact that, as you say, there could be a more material slowdown, but right now that is not the main economic problem facing the U.S.? Well, in a sense, that I mean, you may be right, but the reason that you have an independent Fed is to try and cut through that political push. Uh, I would have liked to see a more balanced discussion on the one hand, on the other hand. I mean, yes, you argue that politically, but that's the reason you have an independent central bank to say, hang on, folks, we're going to cut through the political rhetoric. We're going to cut through what politicians want us to do. And we're going to try and look at the data and understand what's going on. And I don't really see that. I mean, I think if you go to the UK, the UK, the the, the the votes on the MPC for, for rate rises last month and three people wanting more, a meeting coming next week. And basically, there is a counter argument to say that you shouldn't raise it all. So I'm not saying that you shouldn't, but I'm just saying that the argument is much more balanced. Output potentially is going to fall. And the big thing we know is that at points where return downs come, the revisions get you. So the consumer confidence data around the world is predictive of recession. It's predictive of a recession in the United States, in the UK, in Japan, and in Europe. Now, you can ignore it. But this is the best data we have. And it just strikes me that all of these folks may be politically being pushed there, but they're being pushed into making an error. And what you need to see is a balanced discussion saying, on the one hand, the consumer confidence data are saying this. In Europe, we've certainly seen a collapse in the last two months, collapse in people's views about their financial situation, collapse in consumer confidence, which presume, and we know with Christine Lagarde and the ECB is taking very seriously. So if they're taking it very seriously, why is there not a serious discussion at the Fed? The worry is the Fed is beaten by events and it starts to see some horrible data that it's really not prepared people for. Horrible data on the real economy, on the labor market, on output, on retail sales, uh, on defaults. Yeah. Um, so I think you know, it's just we need to balance this discussion. And, and I certainly think that you know, the, 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 if you look at the FOMC and you look at the NPC, the discussion is unbalanced and that's potentially dangerous. Danny, one thing we can agree on, groupthink is deadly. Yeah. It's great to catch up, buddy. Good to hear from you. Danny Blanchard there of Dartmouth. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority. 
by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Anastasia Amoroso, the Chief Investment Strategist at iCapital, joins us now. Anastasia, let's start here. You're looking for a soft-ish landing. Let's talk about the ish. Any evidence of that developing at the moment as you look at the incoming data? Uh, yeah, John, good to see you. I think there's a few things uh, that I look at that give me a hope that we may actually have a wider path to a soft landing here. The first one is you look at the growth numbers. I mean, even with the OECD downgrading growth today, it's still a positive number. And if you look at the U.S., we're expecting 2.6% this year, 2% next year. This is not falling off the cliff. It is still hanging in there. So yes, we're squarely in a slowdown part of this, but this doesn't yet have to be an imminent recession. You know, the second thing that I look at, and frankly, I've not been able to say that, yes, we have seen peak inflation and yes, this is it. But now I feel like there is more and more evidence building that maybe we are starting to see peak inflation. I mean, look at used car prices. They're starting to decline. Look at the business's intentions to continue raises prices. They just can't do it anymore. So more and more of them are saying we're going to pause. If you look at businesses' intentions to raise wages, they're pausing as well. So there's starting to be sort of a preponderance of evidence that maybe inflation is in fact easing. And this is commodities notwithstanding, but the other inflationary pressures seem to be easing. And then the third thing, John, that really gives me some confidence that maybe we can engineer a soft landing is the Fed is starting to sound a little bit more balanced. Yes, of course, they need to fight inflation, but maybe it doesn't have to only be by raising rates well into tightening territory. You know, maybe they can pause and let the high prices naturally bring down demand. So I think if they back away just in time, we might end up with a 94 scenario versus the 70s. Anastasia, everyone wants to game out where we're heading right now. What does that mean for what you're actually buying? Because you have to come up with a thesis before we have all of the dots of what the Fed will or won't do and how the data is going to come in. How risk on are you right now? Yeah, so it's all about the balance of risks. And and I would say just a month or so ago, it seems like we have priced in a lot. We were already at that point, the equity markets were pricing in a 57% probability, probability of recession. And now we've retraced some of that. Where I am today is I think we're trapped in a range. I always thought that 3,900 for this economic environment could sort of be the level of support. We seem to have bounced off that level. But at the same time, how much are you going to pay mm-hmm. for $235 worth of earnings? 16 and a half times is fair, maybe 17 and a half times is fair, which is roughly where we are today, 4,100 on the S&P. But how much more do you push that? So I think, you know, Tom, we are trapped in a range for now, but still there's some investment opportunities to look at. You know that I've liked uh, technology, but one of the calls I have now is actually on financials. You have it on financials, but part of this is the overarching theme, and that goes back to expect the unexpected. 
And I'm talking about Overcome by Events July. There's a mix of dynamics on the screen, which are clearly out of sorts. What's the thing you're looking at for July that could be the unexpected? Well, I think the big, th- well, I, I don't know if it's unexpected, Tom, but maybe it could still surprise us, um, is the commodity shock, right? E- even though I'm saying the supply chain bottlenecks are easing and other inflationary pressures right. are easing, the commodity shortages are okay, not I'm going not, away. I'm going to stop the show. You, more than anyone we know, have a visceral understanding of the coast of the Black Sea. You own the high ground on this. How do you respond to the idea that Odessa with one S or two S's could be shut down? Look, this has a big implication for the commodity market. And, you know, as I mentioned, the world is short of everything. The world is short of wheat, the the world is short of grains, the the world is short of oil and natural gas. To the extent that you close off that corridor, to the extent that the tensions continue to escalate and you can't get product out of that region, that that is really, really tough. I mean, I think that's what people perhaps don't fully price it and don't appreciate. Commodity prices are up a lot this year. And, you know, I think a lot of investors say, well, how much more do you chase that? But what people probably underappreciate is that we have a structural deficit of many of these commodities. So this is not just a tactical trade for this year, but this is longer lasting. Mm. Such a good point. Anastasia, thank you. Anastasia Amoroso there of iCapital. This is the privilege that we have, not only working with Javier Blas, Will Kennedy, and all of Bloomberg Hydrocarbons and Commodity Coverage, but also digging deep into the analysis of global thinkers. The giant of all this is Edward Morse with Daniel Jurgen, separate looking at the global macro moment of this commodity boom. He is global head of commodities at Citigroup, and as John says, has a bit of an outlier call right now. Ed Morris, how do we migrate back to your oil fundamentals under $90 a barrel? What are the trigger points or catalysts that break the ascent of oil? So the catalysts really are very simple. They're called supply and demand, and we've got to get through the next few weeks to see whether there actually is going to be a driving season this summer. Uh, but underlying the, 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 the differences of view is really what we think is raising prices now. And what we think are raising prices now are the dislocations that have occurred as a result of countries and companies refusing to take on Russian oil. There's no easy substitute for euros. We're not in a one oil pricing system. Right. We're in a two-oil pricing system. And we have to remember that while WTI may be at 120 or Brent may be at 120 something, Euros is trading at 30% lower than that. So it's it's not one clear market. And it's the disruption of that lower price that we have to think about right. and ask why we have these higher prices. And I'm going to just say that we're planning a, a trip, Lisa, uh, John, and I, to Abu Dhabi. And, of course, we're going to have an oil summit there. And we're going to have on stage Francisco Blanche, Christian Malik of J.P. Morgan, Blanche of Bank of America, you and other worthies. And the singular distinction seems to be the guess that hydrocarbon investment will or will not come on. If we get higher oil prices, are you more optimistic? than others that investment will materialize? Well, I think we, for starters, I don't think there's that problem. I think we have more than enough investment in hydrocarbons. I think we have a problem in the hydrocarbon world in that the United States, the short cycle big guy, has lost a lot of oil production. The U.S. was producing, we have to remember, 
13 million barrels a day in March of 2020. It went down to 10.2 million a day. It's now at 11.9 million a day. It's well below where it was and where it would have been had we not had that drop in drilling. We would have been at 14 and a half million barrels a day and there would not be this problem. We have more than enough spending into oil and gas mining and development. It's shifted a little bit, but if we look at the next two or three years and compare expectations of demand and supply, we think the market is oversupplied. Ed, have you seen any signs that demand is starting to cool for driving, for flying, that gives you confidence that perhaps we might not see the driving season that some people are expecting? Well, we actually just were trying to observe that, and we decided to look at not only the four-week average this time of year for uh, for gas, excuse me, gasoline and diesel demand in the United States, and we went back and discovered at first glance that it was the lowest it's been in five years, other than in that 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 big year of 2020 when demand collapsed completely. We've now gone back 10 years to find a time when demand for gasoline and diesel were as low as it is. And we had to go back to 2012, 2013. So if we think the EIA weekly data have a semblance of reality to it, gasoline demand is down year on year, diesel demand is down year on year, and it's the lowest it's been for a decade. And that's a sign that the price of oil has had an impact on where demand is going in what still is the biggest oil consuming country in the world. So, Ed, why did you uh, end up shifting your expectations, your forecasts higher, if you still hold to that conviction that we might not see the driving season uh, that a lot of people are saying we will? Well, we drove prices higher, first of all, to mark to market. We had second quarter results that are marking it to market higher than what we where we were at. And we tried to figure out what was really happening. What was really happening was that companies and countries were forswearing Russian crude. They could find no substitute for it. So they had to bid up the availability of light, sweet crude in the world that is not the same as euros. They bid it up from the country that has the most amount of this, namely the U.S. with our open borders. Uh, And the fact of the matter is that U.S. exports have been booming. Our combined exports of crude oil and petroleum products in recent weeks have been at the 10 and a half million barrel a day range. That would make the U.S. the largest liquids provider in the world, bigger than Russia, bigger than Saudi Arabia. That's up by a couple of million barrels a day from where we were. So when companies had to look away from Russia for diesel, where did they go? They went to the U.S. When companies had to look for crude oil, where did they go? They came to the U.S. And our inventories came down, giving a misleading impression that the whole world was going down in the inventory side the same way the U.S. is. Uh, Just quickly, and I've only got a minute, and this deserves a much longer conversation, of course. How sustainable do you think that is politically? Because I don't think those numbers are that well known outside of conversations like this one. Well, I I agree with you. If uh, If it became political, people would start talking about stopping the exports, just as they talked about stopping the exports of natural gas. But it could be politicized in a way that it would be in an election year with gasoline prices being as important as they are. Ed Morse, thank you, sir. As always, of Citigroup, refreshing just to have someone say, we're market to market, Lisa. That's what we had to do. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Terminal. 
I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomer. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.